Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Andrew Goldstein. I'm pleased to share a session from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit featuring the insights of a CMO who transitioned from large pharma to small biotech. Dr. Jeffrey Chedekowitz is the former CMO of Vertex Pharmaceuticals and spoke about the hurdles and successes of his career. The session is called Fireside Chat with an R&D Veteran. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. So next on the agenda, um, we have a fireside chat uh, with a very special person, Dr. Jeff Chedakowitz. Um It's, I think, going to be a great opportunity to kind of reflect back on his career, learn a little bit, um, I think, from a really extraordinary career that he's had. Um, he was actually my boss <laughs> at Vertex, and I remember many, uh, many one-on-ones with him where we really had great talks about our programs and really valued his input. So I think you'll all enjoy this, and thank you, Jeff, for coming today. Um, so Jeff, do you want to just start off and tell us a little bit, snapshot of, about you and your career, and, and then we can dive into some questions? Sure, Julie, thanks. It's, been, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I mean, just very briefly, I came up through a very traditional path in terms of science and med school and all those kinds of things. Um, I will, one interesting anecdote was that to show my age, why I'm retired, it's, uh, I was an intern in New York in 1981 and uh, took care of uh, patients coming in with what appeared to be community-acquired pneumonia. And the next day they were in the ICU, and the next day they had died. And those were the original patients in MMWR who defined the, the start of the AIDS epidemic in this country. Uh, and that certainly has a profound impact on people um, and ended up going into infectious diseases, I think very much linked to that, um, and was in an academic setting until somebody called me who I had known and went to Merck um, and spent 23 years there uh, doing HIV, some of the, the, one of the first triple cocktails, um, and uh, ended up having the chance to develop multiple drugs in uh, ID and then in vaccines as well. Um, and then, as maybe we'll talk about, had a career path change at Merck, uh, went and ran early development across the portfolio, then ran late development across the portfolio uh, after the sharing merger. And uh, that was a great, uh, some great opportunities. And then, as you know very well, uh, at the beginning of 2014, after a long, 23 years at Merck, uh, ended up leaving and coming to Vertex, where I was CEO, a CMO, until I um, re- retired middle of last year and had been and had a slow transition. Quite quite a journey. <laughs> um, so, what are some of the points along the way? I guess where there were some inflection points in your career and and where you had to make decisions about the next step and how how did you think about those and. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's, it's always easier in retrospect to understand what's an important transition and what's an important decision and what's not. And I think that's one of the things we all um, struggle with. I, th- I think, for me, I think one of it was trying to figure out how I wanted to operate, how I wanted to behave, and trying to stay true to that. And part of that was wanting to learn new things and keep trying new things. Um, we were talking before we started about the microbiome and wh- what's going on there. And, but 
there, it doesn't matter in the end, I don't think, exactly what it is, but a chance to think about things differently, to uh, be able to be part of a really important conversation is really exciting. And I think, I suspect that a lot of folks in this room can look back and say, that was my chance to do something different, and that was a lot of fun. And whether it was successful or unsuccessful, you learned something from that process. Um, I think being surround, doing things that allow you to be surrounded by people who you like to speak with uh, and learn from is a really important thing to do. And then occasionally there's that chance to make a big change. Um, I did that um, when somebody came to me, my boss at the time at Merck, and said, we want you to just change jobs with that guy over there. Which at, I, it's hard to, some of you who have been at big companies know that that's not a normal thing at, at a large pharma. And um, so um, we swapped jobs one day. And um, I became head of early development and he became head of ID and vaccines. Um, that was, he, he was an ID person, I will say. <laughs> um, that was hard to take the risk. I sat with Peter Kim, who was the head of uh, Merck Research at the time, and I said, well, what's going to happen? <laughs> what, what, what happens down the road when, you know, if, how things go? And he goes, damned if I know. <laughs> at least he was honest. <laughs> and um, there were no guarantees. And, he, and I, I thought he made a really interesting comment. He goes, this is a great thing for you, and I hope we'll have a great path for you here, and if not, you'll find it somewhere else. And um, I really appreciated his honesty, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, as did the other person. And I think that seizing those moments are, is really powerful. And how did you, when you transitioned to that completely new area, how did you find support and, and, and you know, how did you really take on these completely new responsibilities? You know, people, I think probably everybody here is responsible at some level for employee development, for talent development, which is a really important thing that we all do but don't get a chance to spend enough time on. One of the things that that experience pointed out to me is that these kind of actions are not just about the person or a couple people involved. When I went in and ended up running early development, that was a huge opportunity and, and stressor for all the next level of management in the organization. And they had to step up. In fact, they had not had a chance because that the senior person who I swapped with had so much experience that they didn't have as much chance to really make their mark. So it was not just me, it was them. And yeah, I wasn't as much of an expert on um, subtleties of DDIs, but I brought a different kind of perspective and asked different kinds of questions in that organization and in the organization generally. And I like to believe that that actually helped a lot of people and gave a lot of people opportunities. It certainly did for me because I think um, from that moment onwards, I stopped thinking of myself as an ID person and really just thought of myself as a drug developer. So, so tell us a little bit about the big decision you had to make when you decided to leave Merck after 23 years <laughs> and embark on a completely new career at Vertex. Um, what was going through your mind, and, and was that something planned that you were thinking of leaving, or was that something that just came up, and, and how did you think through that? 
You know, I think I had been thinking about it for a while, 23 years is <laughs> kind of a long time. Um, and, um, and it was really a confluence of some family things that gave me that flexibility and, um, and that I was, ready, I was just ready to make a change. It's always a great thing to make a change when you don't have to. And, um, and I had that luxury and I got a cold call one day about the opportunity at Vertex and made me think a lot about what I wanted in my next career. I felt like I had another, another job left in me that I really was, wanted to be excited about. And um, as I explored more about the company and I talked to a bunch of people about a different, bunch of different jobs, I really s realized that I wanted that size organization and I wanted that kind of environment. And it actually in the end made it an easy decision, but it was, it, I think there were a bunch of points before that where I said no. That sometimes we always talk about saying yes is so hard, but sometimes it's actually hard to say no because you just say, I got to do this. This is the time to go. Well, maybe it is, but sometimes you really have to be strategic in how you think about things. And um, it's very hard. Everybody in this room is incredibly stressed day to day, but. Um, I think that being able to carve out a little time and think about what it is you want as your goal is really valuable. And, it's, and talking to people uh, as well about what their experiences have been and how they approached it can also, I think, help you think about your path. So can you give us just one or two examples of where you said no um, and, and in, the right, you know, in the right reasons and, and how hard that was? Uh, you know, I th no, it's a great question. I think some of it was really about um, roles that I don't think really would have been enough of a change. And it, this is such a personal discussion. It's almost hard to sit here and have this in, this in a room full of people because everybody's got to figure out what it is for them. But I think there were a lot of kind of calls that were about things with nice titles and things like that. But I don't think it would have really grown me as a person. Um, and I, I, I think that's really, in the end, a lot of why I said no. And, and also, I, some of it was very operational little companies that I didn't think were going to be able to have a reasonable chance of being successful. Um, and it just wasn't the right thing for me. But I think a lot of it was about saying, where I said no was saying, I'm going to wait. And I was lucky that I was having these chances at Merck. And um, I think I, I waited till the right time for me. Right. And sometimes it's just you're learning and growing where you are, and that's Absolutely. a time to stay. So. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the transition from big pharma to a mid-size, you know, operating almost like a smallish biotech um, <laughs> that was rapidly growing at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, it seemed like a, a small company. <laughs> I suspect that if we went around the room, people would be thinking about Vertex as a much bigger company. But uh, first of all, five years ago, it was somewhat earlier. I, uh, I, when I got there, I looked at the development organization, and I talked. To, you and I talked about it being an organization in its adolescence, because it, it was smart, it, had real, it was excited, it had energy, but each morning sometimes it didn't know how long its arms or legs were. And um, that was really quite, um, quite uh, exciting, but also um, challenging. I think that um, pr 
probably the hardest thing to get used to was the ex the experience level once you went below that next person down. I think, uh, and it, I think it links to your comment about who you're speaking with when you're talking about um, deals potentially. Um, you really just realize that these are smart people, but they have not ever seen it before, and um, and and they've only seen it done one way, uh, which was that that vertex way, and um, and so it was a lot about getting in there, really understanding why people were, you know, proposing solutions that they did, and really understanding that the 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 culture. Uh, was um, very different, and that you really—it was great in many ways, but it—it it really had to mean you had to operate. I had to operate differently, and that was—I I made some mistakes, <laughs> just to be very honest about it. Um, didn't operate, didn't make changes quickly enough sometimes when I saw that uh, a gap. Um, but I think that ultimately, it. Um, it was a it was a chance to really influence the way an organization was evolving. And how did you think about the organization of the R? We talked a little bit yesterday about growing and building a team, an R and D team, and how challenging that can be. You know, how did you? Uh, I know you said it, sometimes it took a little longer than you thought, but what were some of the things that were in the back of your mind as you were building the group out? I think it was about. Uh, thinking differently about capabilities and where we were trying to go as an organization. And I, I think one of the probably challenges a lot of people have is how do you execute on what you have in front of you, what do you when you have on your plate that day, but still actually realize that if you wait until you're where you want to get to in two or three years, you're DOA. And, um, and I think that that's a really hard balance, but I think how, who you hire is a very important part of that, that I really tried. There, there was a, a huge amount of pressure. I'm sure everybody here has felt it. Like, did you, did you hire the person for that role? And you could have, but you didn't, because you really were waiting for somebody who had the potential to grow with the organization down the road. I think that was, um, and the, the other thing, and this is, the other thing that I tried to do was be sure that I gave a chance to understand that I, so that I really understood the environment people were operating in and said, am I really sure that that person is not going to be the one who can, who can fulfill that, uh, that goal? So it, it, it takes time, it takes a lot of energy, um, but it's one of the most important things we all do. So what were some of the most rewarding parts of moving over to, uh, you know, to a smaller company from from Mark? You know, I think it was about, for me, I think it was, first of all, within the development organization, it was a chance to really help grow and influence people, um, a chance to help share what uh, I had had an opportunity to, to see over the years, um, it, it, and to tap the people, because there's so, so many smart people and people who were so enthusiastic that they needed a chance to be given a little space. Some of what I did was actually provide some cover for people in the organization so that they could actually do what they were capable of doing. Um, I think that was great. And then I think from a CMO role, we 
you're talking to these couple days about the role. I think it went beyond, it was being part of something beyond the development organization. I think there's a huge need uh, an opportunity for people in the CMO role to influence their research colleagues in terms of thinking ahead of what the challenges and opportunities are going to be. I, I think the BD role, again, to, uh, to go back to the prior conversation, I, I just think that's so important. And, um, you know, it's very easy to have that not invented here kind of mindset. I think the CMO role really is a great springboard into BD. Um, you can go in there and say, listen, the patients actually care about this. This is what it's going to be able to do. You know, this is how I see it being used down the road. And um, yes, sometimes you have to say, no, this is trash. <laughs> but sometimes you have to say, you know, guys, this is going to be hard, but this is worth it. And in these organizations, having an advocate is extremely powerful in a smaller organization. And I think that we can do that uh, in our organizations uh, by picking and choosing and being critical when you should be, but being an advocate when you see the right opportunity. Talk a little bit, you talked about being, you know, the CMO role. Talk a little bit about what you see um, as the, some, some of the key important roles that CMO plays on the executive team and with the CEO. So again, it's always going to be a, um, a personal experience. Um, I th and it changes very much in the situation. So I came into uh, Vertex and we had a MD-PhD CEO. Well, the, I, don't really, I didn't really need to do a lot of education. Um, <laughs> right? But um, I suspect a number of you have to do that. Um, I think that the philosophy that we had there that uh, Jeff Lydon, who was the CEO, really set was about freedom to ask questions outside of your swim lane. And I think that that's really valuable. So I had um, other members asking me, by the way, everybody thinks they can design clinical trials as far as I can tell. Um, but, um, but a chance to, I got good questions from my colleagues. And as I learned, I had the chance to say, you know, really, you, you think that's what you're going to tell investors or that's what you're going to tell the street? Um, uh, and I think it became a very interactive process. And I learned a lot about the business. And that was fun. I was ready to learn that. Um, and, and that was a lot of fun. I, I, I do think there's obviously some very serious responsibilities that we have. I mean, you sometimes do just have to say, I'm responsible for patient safety, and I'm not going to do that. Um, luckily for me, when you have an MD-PhD CEO, that, that's not going to be too much of an issue. But there's still judgment calls that you have to make. And I think we have a very strong responsibility to do that. But again, it goes back to that, that idea of saying, when you have to be cautious, you are. But when you can push ahead, when you can accelerate, when you do see an opportunity, being an advocate for that as well. And whether that's in a trial, whether it's an interaction with a regulatory agency, um, the thing that I hated the most hearing from people is saying, well, there's that medical need, but there's no regulatory path. <laughs> Nonsense, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know, agencies want to figure that out too. 
and um, there is a path. You just ha it just hasn't been done yet. So I think that having that kind of mindset can be really valuable as part of an executive team. So why don't we just open it up to a few questions right now, and then we can transition after that just to where you are now and what you're doing. So anyone have any questions so far on Jeff's interesting career path and decision-making along the way? Oh, as, as it's a wonderful uh, experience that you've had. Uh, what can you share with us about the, the what did you learn about the, the optimal reporting structure for a CMO? You, for example, medical affairs, sometimes in commercial, sometimes with you, regulatory, sometimes, or and quality. Some people argue they should not be with the CMO. So are, uh, is this just unnecessary engineering? What did you learn along the way? <laughs> Why do I sense this is a dangerous topic? <laughs> um, you know, I think if there were one perfect way to do it, then everybody would have figured that out and we'd all be doing it that way. I think, because I think the real truth is that there is no one right way to do it. Um, I'll, I'll give you a couple of anecdotes. Um, so we evolved a separation of research and development. So I'm the, uh, I was the CMO and head of development at Vertex. Um, we brought in uh, an out, well, he was, he was from the board, but David Altshuler uh, from the Broad who came in to be the CSO. You know, brilliant guy, very nice guy, uh, but no drug development experience even on the research side. And, um, it was, it was decided that it would be separate so that he and I together represented R&D. Um, we were separate, but we collaborated very strongly together. That was fantastic. For us, it really worked. There were people who found it confusing that there was not a single head of R&D. Um, but I actually think that we got a huge amount of value out of the two of us being there. That might not be the right solution for every organization, but I thought it was a really, um, I, th I thought it worked really well for us. Regulatory was part of my organization, but um, compliance was not, QA was not. Um, that, I, I think that there are good reasons for that, but I don't think there's an absolute right or wrong, honestly. Um, I think it really is about setting the tone of the interactions really early on and being sure that if those people then are reporting to the CEO that you have that ability to have the conversation with your CEO about how decisions are going to get made. Any, any, yeah. um, you made this comment about, the, uh, about this guy who um, uh, joined your joined the group, not, not your group, and didn't have particular experience in, in drug development, perhaps. So it inspires me to ask you this question about hiring, which you did speak quite a bit about. I, um, you know, I've had mentors in the past say to me, just hire smart people. They'll learn to do the job. I've had a boss of mine say, take this new job. You only know how to do half of it, but you'll learn the other half on the job. You know, my general feeling is I also prefer to hire intelligent people and see if they can be trained to do the job rather than 
the way job descriptions are often phrased where you have to tick 16 boxes of the experience they've already had and how many years they've done X, Y, and Z, which feels a little AI and not necessarily all that effective at the end of the day. And having run large groups, I imagine, at a, at a very large company, I'm curious what your general guidance for yourself and for team members was in terms of bringing on new people. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I think it's hard to, um, to generalize. I think in a perfect world, it, it's, a, it's environment. You know, I think it's great when you have somebody with a lot of potential. Even Nobody's checked all the boxes, by the way, so if you wait for that, you're never going to fill the role. Um, I think that, it, but even somebody who's checked a lot of the boxes, if you have other people around them, I think it goes back to sort of my comment about when I change jobs with somebody. Put, it, it's an opportunity and a, and a stressor on some of the other folks. When you're in a very small organization and that's the only person who's going to do that, it may just not be feasible to be able to hire somebody who has high potential but no experience. Um, the other thing that I always try to put very high on my hiring radar was cultural fit because um, uh, I just like to operate in a collaborative way, and if you have somebody who is going to mess that up, I don't care how smart they are, uh, it's not going to be a good outcome. And so that was a balance that I always asked very consciously about. So to follow that comment right up, and I realize if you had the answer for this, I'd like to see you afterwards. We're going to start a new company. Um, <laughs> cultural no more line functions. <laughs> <laughs> you made the comment, cultural fit. And I'm sure everybody here knows how important that is. And it's unique to all of us in terms of how we go about trying to figure out <laughs> does candidate A, candidate B, candidate C have it? And no matter how good you are, uh, at doing that, still you do get surprises. But what did you do? How did you do that? Give us your secret sauce, realizing it's not going to be, it's not going to work for all of us. Right. Or it didn't work 100% for me. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I mean, I guess a couple of things that I tried to do. Uh, one is that as soon as somebody, I was serious about somebody, I often tried to be sure we didn't just have formal interviews, but went out to dinner, went out to coffee, did, had some other kinds of interactions. Um, another thing that I did that I think was, I, I don't know how often it's done, is that I never let the headhunters do the reference calls for me. That I always insisted on calling everybody myself, um, so that I could, and I always blocked out enough time so I could really probe, and if I figured out people that I might know, I didn't only call the references of, um, uh, that the person gave me. Uh, I think that that was, I think that was really helpful for me in terms of influencing my, uh, my thinking. Sometimes it actually made me much more enthused about the person, and other times it didn't. Um, the, other, the last thing is that on the interview process, I tried to get a fairly consistent panel of people um, who were interviewing, so to allow those cross-study comparisons. And um, the, I also engaged, you were, you were uh, asking me, Julie, about the, being part of the executive team. 
I, for senior roles, I actually asked people who were in very different kinds of parts of the organization who were senior to, to be part of the interview process for me, and then I actually did the same for them. And I, I think it was valuable, because sometimes they really had good insights. They asked about stuff that I just hadn't thought of going to. I don't know how helpful that is. And I think a lot of us who are successful in our career, we all have very good mentors or advisors or advocates above us in the organization. I was just wondering if there were anybody that stuck out in your mind that you would mention to us. Yeah. Um, I guess, first of all, just a general comment. I think, it's, I think it is important. I have to say that I think I underestimated the importance of mentors through a lot of my career. Um, um, but I do think it's really helpful. By the way, I don't think that means all the, the, these routine mentor programs where people just get assigned somebody and they meet twice and that's the end of it. I don't, but true mentors, I think, are really valuable. And I was fortunate, um, that actually the person who was my manager for many years at Merck, who was the person who, uh, with Peter, said, just change jobs with that guy. Uh, a guy named Barry Gertz. He, he was, uh, I think, a true mentor and a huge help. Uh, the other thing, uh, there was a guy named Merv Turner, who as was a basic scientist who then became um, the head of, of uh, BD from, from the research side. And he was somebody who uh, I, I learned to really value and I could just go when I, had, when I was not sure about a path. I could really speak with him. He was just a very wise guy. So um, I, I was fortunate to have a couple. It is really hard, and, but I think people confuse them with the true mentorship versus things they can just point to. So just before we wrap up, just want, <laughs> um, I just want to hear a little bit about what you're doing now and how you made the decision to transition on. The decision was very simple. When I was interviewing, um, Jeff Lydon asked me whether I could commit to three to five years, and I said, Jeff, three yes, five no. <laughs> I, I knew that that was the horizon I was on, and that was, that was okay. And so we actually worked on my transition for years. And I think that was really a, a great experience, and I felt like I left the organization in, in good hands. Uh, at this point now, I had actually started working on one board for a public company some years ago. I joined a, another one, and now, and, I really enjoy that. I think it's a great way to stay in touch and to have an impact. Um, so I'm doing that. And I actually also am serving as a senior advisor for one of the uh, VCs here in Boston. What used to be Claris, it's now Blackstone. Uh, and um, that's a very different world. And I'm learning stuff there and is able to use um, my experience and learn new things. And really, that's kind of staying. Uh, at, the, at that more cutting edge, I think is really a, w a great way to do, great way to do retirement. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> All right, one other question, right before we wrap up. Hi, Jeff. In the spirit of our training, see one, teach one, do one. I work now with Julie, so um, just a quick question. <laughs> Um, just a quick question around what you said about cultural fit and how you really strive to make sure um, that the person you're bringing in sort of meets that, uh, that checkbox. 
What do you do, uh, what have you done when um, you needed to change the culture of where you are? You saved that, that question for the end. I, <laughs> you know, it's really, I, I don't, I think changing culture, people have said this, I'm not saying anything that you haven't heard a thousand times, but changing the culture of an organization is incredibly hard. Um, first of all, I think it's about giving it time because if you think you're gonna do it quickly, you're just dooming yourself to failure. I, I think, honestly, what we do, what we all do here in this room is if we walk the walk, because I, people are smart and they see what you're doing. You think you're being subtle, but you're not. And um, I think the, the single biggest thing we do in terms of how you operate, the people that you hire, as we were talking about, whether you actually interrupt people all the time or whether you actually let them talk and listen to what they've said, I think there are things that are small, but that do have an effect on people. Um, but it is, I think it's a great question, and I'm still learning, because <laughs> I don't have a great answer. But I know that um, if you think you can do it uh, and be cute about it, I know that won't work. Just to follow on that question, and then I promise we'll end. <laughs> what were a couple of things um, you did uh, to model the culture, to try to model uh, the culture that you wanted to create? at Vertex, not that necessarily always succeeded, but. <laughs> um, I always ask the team members what, the, what their recommendation was. I would never let people sit down without saying what they thought we should do. Um, I tried to get people to um, be peer reviewers. Um, you know, I act, uh, on my town halls, I always had a compliance or QA topic on the agenda, so people were, not because people, just to be very clear, not because people weren't compliant, uh, but because people didn't, had never seen what happens when that goes wrong. And I would always talk about the story of a drug, a great drug that took years longer to get approved because of those kinds of questions. And so I, I really just tried to look for ways without hammering it to, uh, to insert it into the conversation. That's great. Okay, on that, we'll end um, this session. And I think right now we have a quick networking break. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.